ahead on Sport Unlocked concerns grow for Afghanistan's female footballers with evacuations being planned. Plus, Barcelona's worsening debt, UEFA's investment fund plans and the creative and curious deals of the summer transfer window. Then, in the second half of the pod, we go in-depth talking to the man helping to run a Premier League team, NFL franchise, all while campaigning to try to get cricket into the Olympics. Introducing Parag Marate, President of 49ers Enterprises, EVP of Football Operations, Vice Chairman of Leeds United, Chairman of USA Cricket. Hello and welcome to Sport Unlocked for a special episode 30. Not only do we have the interview coming up with Parag, but we're all together for the first time. That's me, Rob Harris from the Associated Press and Martin Ziegler from the Times and Tarek Panja from the New York Times and can believe we're still going after starting this back in January. Yeah, well, I'm glad to say that it's really taken off. Um, I'm delighted with the numbers of people who are listening in, um, interested in what's happening off the field. So um, hopefully we're providing some really good insight and analysis into what's happening in the boardrooms, uh, in in the uh, governing bodies of sports and, and all the controversies there. It was incredible some of the listening we are getting. We hit number two in the Apple Sports Pod in Paraguay. Maybe we should be doing this in Spanish as well. But, you know, for now, really grateful if anyone can hit subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to us on. It means we drop into your feed automatically. And, of course, you can always message us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Social media particularly, of course, busy with transfers, not a pod that we get in-depth on the deals, but it's been a pretty interesting w- window in terms of some of the machinations of some of those deals, hasn't it been? Yes, uh, Buenos Dias, Paraguay, uh, to start with. Um, but yes, a lot of interesting transfers, pr- probably because of pandemic, etc., the massive impact on club balance sheets has been, we've talked about this in the past, Man City, PSG and Chelsea are able to spend you know, freely because of their ownership. We don't want to get bogged down in, in that every week, but, but there's been creative transfers, none more so than, than Juventus in Italy, who kind of make a habit of making curious deals in Serie A. And there was one this week which really struck me. is um, Italian midfielder Manuel Locatelli, one of the stars of uh, Euro 2020 in Italy's victory, their central midfielder. He was playing for Sassuolo until this week. Highly prized player. And despite the market being... being um, dry at the very elite level there is there is interest in these top players and Juventus have managed to secure Locatelli in a very curious deal very strange arrangement so 35 million euros is the fee but the first two years of that deal Sassuolo don't get paid any money at all he goes to Juventus on loan and then only in the third year Juventus are due to start paying this 35 million euro fee, which is you know incredibly cheap at that very top end of the market. And even then, they they pay that over a number of years. And you have to wonder, you know, what's in it for Sassuolo? Uh, people are saying, well, you know, uh, Locatelli only wanted to go to Juventus, so they were stuck between a rock and a hard place. But then I will name um, Harry Kane. He only wants to go to Man City, it seems. But that price has not changed. It's interesting, Martin, isn't it? How, how does how does that work? I mean, I think if 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 I was uh, in Italy, in a, a fan in Italy uh, of a, a club other than Juventus, 
I would be um, pretty angry that there seems to be some sort of special deal that has been cooked up. Um, and it just, it just, it tastes wrong. It smells wrong to me um, that it, you're, you're having this very, very uh, uh, fortunate deal for Juventus who are actually the, the, probably the richest club in Italy yet they're, because of their financial issues at the moment, they're sort of doing this, making this slightly dubious agreement. I'd be quite surprised if that was allowed in the Premier League, for example, because I think they would be a feeling amongst all the other clubs that there's it's a bit of an unhealthy relationship. What does it say about the willpower of the other Serie A teams? Of course, we're still coming off the back of Juve trying to rip up the whole system by being part of the Super League charge. And of course, Serie A were very much against uh, that, but they didn't punish them, did they? Well, Rob, that's really interesting. The, the chief executive and the chairman of Serie A at the time said if Juventus remain in, in Super League, they will not be allowed to play in, in, in Serie A. Well, Juventus are one of the three teams that have a kind of remained in Super League and there hasn't been any punishment there at all. Um, in fact, they're, they're now with Inter Milan's demise, uh, of course, Inter's financial problems well documented. Juventus are, are pretty much odds on to walk the championship this year, a championship that they were essentially thrown out of um, in words but not deeds. I think there is a, a sense of crisis you know, enveloping Serie A as, as per usual, unfortunately. But the fact is that um, are they paying the price now, Serie A, for deciding not to punish them, even though they're still now going on as the rebellious streak and they are still part of Real Madrid and Barcelona's push for that Super League? And we've been hearing yet more from Barcelona this week as well about why they're still going along with the Super League too. That, that was interesting, wasn't it, Martin? You, you followed that um, Juan Laporta marathon press conference this week. It was really interesting, um, and it did actually highlight some of the really serious financial issues affecting a lot of the European clubs. I mean, and especially Barcelona, just laying bare the sort of ridiculous nature of the spending that has been taking place there. I mean, paying €8 million Euros to a scout in South America as a talent spotter, um, it, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, they're paying 103% of their turnover on salaries. Um, I think he said they just like spent their 222 million from Neymar's transfer at the speed of light. Obviously, there's a there's a, there's a lot of trying to throw dirt at the previous regime, but I think even allowing for that, you'd have to say that this is a prime example of how the biggest club in the world should not have behaved. And the debt has now reached 1.35 billion euros. And Laporte said the club has a net worth at minus 451 million euros. What does it mean? Because they clearly are worth something. What does it mean? If it was a normal company, normal business, it means it's bankrupt. And, and like negative equity of that level means you sort of lock the doors and walk away. But this is, this is Barcelona. Another number that I found really striking was an annual loss, they're estimating, at 487 million euros for the year. That would be a record by a huge margin, and yet yet they're still going. And the thing about this uh, Laporta character is also interesting, is that he seems to have been really shocked by all of this. Um, you know, not so long ago, he was talking about keeping Lionel Messi at the club. And, and I, I think there is politics here, and this speaks to the model of, of Barcelona and clubs like that, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Benfica in, in Portugal, for example, where you are a member-owned club, 
the, these teams are political institutions with these politicians presenting um, numbers in their favor when they want or against a regime when they want. These are, are, aren't really businesses or even sports teams as we would know them. They're run on entirely different um, metrics. And I wonder in the current system whether they can still have a long-term future. What do you think? Do you think this member model can carry on? I mean, one of the issues is with the election of a president. While it does give the fans a say, the, the, president, the president, when they're candidate, is constantly offering these big plans to fans and trying to seduce them in terms of attracting their votes with grand ambitions in terms of what they can spend. And that means overspending and leaving the problem further down the line for a successor. I mean, it is quite funny that it's only a few years ago these were being held up as the sort of brilliant fan-owned clubs. You know, you don't have oligarchs or oil-rich states owning these clubs. You have It's all great because it's the fans. But actually, um, it, it just showed that, like any other club, if, if it's not run properly, whoever's running it, it uh, can lead to disaster. There's obviously an element of people promising the world in order to get elected and finding that very difficult to deliver once they're there. And no club has preached and claimed to be more virtuous than any other club than Barcelona. Can it finally get rid of this more than a club? The fact they're clearly, you know, it's it's empty, pious promises. I think think that more than a club mantra disappeared as soon as they whacked the name Qatar on the front of their jerseys. It was just like any other club once it was a pristine Barcelona shirt as then sponsored like everyone else. But but in terms of um, the, the model, I, I think it, it, it allows for this type of behaviour more than, say, the company model or the ownership model because the person in charge has almost nothing to lose. You spend this money, you fritter it away, there is no shareholder it's no one is almost accountable for for this type of behavior laporta uh, outlined the fact they've they've had to take a, a loan out from goldman stacks 500 million pounds you've uh, you've written this week Tarek, that uefa is trying to set up this fund essentially where clubs who've been affected by the, the pandemic can can you borrow money from that i mean is that something Barcelona would, would look into, do you think? It's funny. I think uh, Barcelona, who are at war and suing UEFA, would very much like a helping hand where they can. Uh, obviously, they, we talked about this last week. They rejected the the CDC agreement with La Liga because they were going to give away something. But this, this agreement uh, offer from UEFA, which is potentially coming down the line, is essentially a, a loan from a group of banks, a fund that could be up to $7 billion. And it will be offered to teams that are playing in Europe, the three competitions, Champions League, Europa League, and this new conference competition. And it's basically a forward financing, um, giving them cash to deal with their, their issues right now. And it will be leveraged, um, secured against uh, future Champions League income. So the money will go to the teams now and the, the, the flow to the banks will be directly from 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 UEFA. And one of the big reasons is is this massive risk of contagion between teams because one of the biggest debts are teams owing each other money for transfers. And once teams stop paying what they owe, that risks a domino effect. UEFA is trying to put something in place that can prevent that from happening at a lower rate of interest than if clubs individually go to banks and have their hands up. 
under this situation. So that's going to be discussed in, in September and, and maybe offered a little bit later after that as part of the uh, UEFA convention, that big meeting that takes place in, in, the, in this first week of, of September. Well, doesn't encourage clubs to continue to mismanage their finances if you're going to be able to get bailed out by UEFA or this fund? Yes, you might owe the money still, but you know the safety net is there if uh, you do mess things up like Barcelona. Yeah, I guess there needs to be some conditions on, on, on that cash. What, what sort of conditions do you think there should be on, on these loans, Martin? Yeah, there certainly has to be an element that you can't just go and splash it all on a new signing or a, a massive salary for um, a free transfer or an agent's fee because that would be absolutely against everything that the, the fund is meant to be used for. So there would have to be some conditions around that. Um, and you, I, don't know what, I don't know how easy that would be to enforce, but... Clearly, that would have to be an element. Of course, we're yet to see the big summer transfer signing Lionel Messi play for Paris Saint-Germain yet. But Tariq, you did some number crunching to show that actually we might not see him that often playing for Paris Saint-Germain because you compared Neymar's stats at Barcelona and at PSG. And for instance, in his last three seasons at Barcelona, he played more than 30 games in the league in each of those seasons but actually he's only ever even hit 20 games a season once in the league for PSG and that was in his first season. Yeah it was it was interesting and it kind of speaks to what some people say is like this celebrity culture player power culture at Paris Saint-Germain that it is a kind of star factory now where you, you bring this constellation of of players in there and that you you market this club as a luxury brand etc and you know People will say, yeah, Neymar was injured and he's been injured. But a lot of these injuries, you know, they coincide sometimes with um, Carnival in Brazil. He's been injured. He's been pictured at, at Carnival. And Paris Saint-Germain have allowed him to, to travel over there. And there seems to be, you know, liberties you can take. And maybe, maybe you can do that when you're playing for Paris Saint-Germain. Because, you know, more often than not, it doesn't affect their ability to win the French League. It's perhaps less uh, competitive than the others with, with the amount of money Paris Saint-Germain are able to, to, to impose on, on, on the market and salaries and have the best players compared. And we might, might see him, you know, saved in uh, league matches and, and, and then rolled out for the Champions League, that trophy that PSG haven't won and that the Qatari owners crave so much. Yeah, it would be absolutely fascinating to see some of these like smaller um, contests against the, the the less fashionable French sides if if he actually takes part in those or what the lineup is going to be. Um, be quite annoying if you're a PSG fan and you actually don't get to see him that much, though, wouldn't it? Particularly for the away teams as well, who might actually hope for a bit of an attendance boost with the prospects of uh, Messi playing there. And they're desperately in need often of uh, some of the revenue that they don't have compared with PSG. I mean, all this stuff is obviously for most football fans is incredibly interesting and exciting. Um, but balanced against that this week, Rob, you've been um, writing some fairly hard hitting stuff about. Um, the sporting impact of what's been happening in Afghanistan, haven't you? Yeah, the fast pace of things and as they've unfolded in Afghanistan over the last week, it was only on Sunday that the Taliban moved in and opposed into Kabul. And of course, there are sporting implications of this for the safety of athletes and particularly female athletes. And I was speaking to Khalida Popal as she helped to set up the Afghanistan women's national football team 
And a decade ago, she was captaining it as well. She's now in Denmark and she's deeply concerned about those members of the team who are at home still in Afghanistan. And in many cases, she's encouraged them to be very active in calling for promotion of women's rights and also speaking out against the Taliban, believing that they were no longer a power and a force to be reckoned with. We've seen with the rapid withdrawal of the US-led forces, just how easily they have taken back control. And now she's been advising those players to go into hiding, to move away from neighbours who know them as players and to tell them to delete their social media records. And it's a real time of instability and uncertainty, regardless of those public pronouncements from the Taliban that, yes, they might have turned over a new leaf and be respectful of women's rights. But as we know, those pledges have become very caveated, haven't they? Yeah, and you mentioned social media, and it's interesting. You know, Afghanistan has an IOC member, a female, Samira Asghari. Uh, earlier this week, she, she called for help on, on social media, on Twitter, I think, um, calling for aid for the country's female athletes who are, are at risk, at least at risk if, if we are to assume this Taliban is similar to the previous Taliban regime, women's, the idea of women's sports was anathema to them. The, the idea of women's rights, women going to school was, was, was opposed by them. They're saying that they've turned over a new leaf. But, but Samir Asghari uh, said, please help athletes, coaches and their entourage. You know, we, we need them out of um, the Taliban's hands. And she said, before it's too late. And, you know, that's obviously chilling. But the worrying thing, even more so, is that she's now subsequently deleted that tweet. And that kind of speaks to the pressure. And she's not the only athlete or, or sports figure who, who has been caught up in this. There's a horrible story. Um, I think some of us have seen those images of um, an aeroplane taking off on Sunday with, with people holding on to that plane. It was a U.S. military plane. Um, and there were images of um, chilling images of of, of people falling off that once it had taken off. Um, that plane landed in, in Doha, I think, in Qatar. And in inside the landing gear, there were found bodies, including, um, sad to say, a under-19 Afghan footballer, a, a man, a, a young boy, I suppose, you know, a teenager who played for Afghanistan and his, his body parts were found. That just speaks to how horrific this situation is right now. Yeah, absolutely horrendous. And FIFA on Friday saying they're shocked and saddened by the tragic death of Zaki Anwari. We are hearing as well more from FIFPRO as the World Players Union that they're trying to establish what they're calling an evacuation plan for athletes at risk. They're trying to get safe routes out now of the country from Kabul airport, which is really difficult to secure flights and to do so safely. But they're saying they're particularly concerned for all athletes who may have been outspoken advocates for improved human rights in the country over the years. And the focus will turn to FIFA as well, because they do have big connections in the corridors of power around the world, particularly Gianni Infantino. We see meeting in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman and the Kremlin, Russia with Vladimir Putin. Now seems the moment for FIFA to try to exert some of its diplomatic influence to bring the players out safely, if they wish to do so, from Afghanistan. Well, Rob, interesting. Afghanistan is is, is really central to one of the big cases at FIFA recently. There was the well-documented sexual abuse case against the former Afghan FA president. He, uh, a warlord, no less, he's now been banned from football. But what about those female players who made the complaints against him? What kind of dangers are they in? 
And what is football trying to do to, to support those women? Because they did make a, a complaint against a very powerful figure in, in Afghanistan. Yeah, FIFA may actually not realise quite how much power it has because one thing which does tend to uh, unite everybody, whatever their um, political persuasions or, or political views or religious views, is football. And um, for a country like Afghanistan, I think, even if it's the Taliban or whoever, if there is something that football can do, they will absolutely engage with that because they will want to be part of, of global football, I'm sure. Of course, we would be expecting to see Afghanistan's football teams in action during the international break in September. That's one to keep an eye on. The immediate sporting impact is on the Paralympics starting in Tokyo and there is no longer going to be an Afghanistan delegation there, is there? Yeah, it seems very unlikely there's going to be an Afghan delegation there, unfortunately. And, you know, sport sometimes, what do they say, is the, the, the most important or the least important things. And for those athletes who train for that and to represent their country would have, would have been very important. And, you know, we, we've had sport and politics mix quite a bit. We had the, the issue in the, in the Tokyo Olympics with the Belarusian athlete who claimed she was being kidnapped and ended up claiming asylum and is now... Um, in Poland, she recently said she's going to represent uh, Poland if she could in, in, in the sports world. And it just shows what pressure athletes from Belarus are under too. This week, Belarusian authorities said no athlete from that country can compete internationally. What is the IOC going to do about that? Finally, will it ban Belarus and its Olympic Committee said very little that people have been asking for this for a year and at every turn Belarus has done something even worse and the IOC is, is yet to act. Do, do you think these these governing bodies have a greater responsibility than maybe the odd soundbite that's been released? Uh, yes and no. Um, I mean I think uh, certainly with Belarus because it was directly involved with an Olympic athlete then um, the IOC should very much get involved and can take action. Um, that's definitely for sure. Um, it, I mean, we've got the Paralympics starting, got the, the uh, International Paralympic Committee uh, involved there. It's going to be another one of these events without any fans taking part, um, and they're, they're pushing very strongly for um, all the athletes to be vaccinated and going there. It's quite interesting, that this whole vaccination thing, because we're seeing it at the Premier League, they're asking players to, to be vaccinated, they're not forcing them. Uh, the same for the Paralympics. We've now had Pat Cash, the Australian tennis legend, um, coming out really strongly and saying he doesn't think young athletes should take vac be vaccinated. He's, he, he is very much of the, the anti-vax lobby. He is saying, I just don't want young, healthy athletes taking something that could long-term damage them for no reason. I mean, personally, I think that any long-term damage might come from Pat Cash warning people not to be vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the things we're going to see a lot more of in the coming weeks as the new season begins, particularly in football. Players might be travelling abroad and players who haven't been vaccinated. And you see some bits on social media from some players who are starting to spread that disinformation. And I think it's been noticeable that football has not mounted any campaign to get players vaccinated whether it's from the players' unions, they've kept a very neutral path. The Premier League, for instance, they've only been 
encouraging good health. No one's been talking about get vaccinated. Individual clubs have. They've had vaccination centres at the likes of Arsenal, Tottenham. But FIFA, they've stayed silent. They did a big campaign on washing your hands, but they've said nothing about actually getting vaccinated. Oh, have you had your vaccine at Anfield? Let's not forget. But yeah, I think I think it's important. I suppose this issue of personal liberty, uh, athlete rights, etc. But back to that Pat Cash point uh, that he raised. He doesn't want young, healthy athletes taking something that could affect them for no reason. But isn't the whole point that it's not just for yourself? By 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 vaccinating, you are protecting others around you. I'm sure. These um, young, healthy athletes might have parents, grandparents, uncles and aunts, etc. The whole point of the vaccination program, Martin, unless I'm wrong here, is that it protects society at large. Well, that's what, uh, you know, that's why I've been vaccinated. And um, you know, I would certainly um, feel very strongly that people shouldn't be forced to, but people should be encouraged to. Another, another issue we, we've had... Uh, we've been waiting for this Yorkshire racism report. Um, there was a, a cricketer who, who made a complaint. And we've had a we've had a resolution or at least uh, a result. Yes, this is Azim Rafiq who um, made a complaint about um, racism at Yorkshire. Um, they've carried out a, a, an investigation. They haven't published it though. Um, they've apologised for what they say is inappropriate behavior they haven't actually said racism and Rafiq himself um, not happy with the outcome and he's accused the county of fudging a public apology uh, this investigation has been going on for 10 months and it's not been handled very well by Yorkshire at all do, do, this needs to be published Rob normally now we're at a time where these issues on, on, on race uh, are to the fore. Reports like this need to be made public. For confidence of the general public to actually know the process has been carried out and to know that they've been treated rigorously. An investigation carried out behind closed doors is not uh, something that you can have confidence in. I mean, we saw it with the FA a few years ago with their reports into discrimination in the women's team and they had to go through a second round of inquiries once the original one was discovered not to be rigorous enough and that will be the accusation of questioning the rigour if you can't actually see it. So we expect to see this in front of a select committee as per usual Martin? Well that would be great if that, if that happened. I mean it's particularly bad I think that the, the, the person who's made the allegations hasn't seen the report himself because surely at the very least he should have sight of what allegations have been upheld and which haven't, and um, who, which people have been uh, taking responsibility for the things that have happened and, and those who have been cleared, because that's got to be very important as well. Well, elsewhere in Yorkshire, in a different sport, Leeds United are now in their second season back in the Premier League. And I'm delighted to say joining us here in central London on Sport on Lot is Parag Marate. He's the vice chairman of Leeds United. But not only that, he's also president of 49ers Enterprises. He's also executive vice president of football operations at the NFL franchise. If that wasn't enough, he's also chairman of USA Cricket. Welcome to Sport on Lot, Parag. How have you got time to be with us? We have less than two weeks to go until the transfer window closes with your football hat on, Premier League football hat. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun having a, a, all these hats because uh, one thing that's really neat about it is the opportunity to uh, 
Um, there's just so much that I can import and export across different sports, right? Because at the end of the day, um, people, we, we tend to overcomplicate sports, right? At the end of the day, it's still about competition and victory. And it's still about players on the pitch or field or court or whatever it might be and fans who are supporting it, right? Um, and so it's not that, it could be widget ball. It doesn't matter. It's not that complicated. Uh, and so as, as I've now seen across at least three different sports with American football, uh, English football in the Premier League and with cricket, uh, there's so many things that I can that I can share uh, and learn what to do and what not to do. And as a result, the sum of the parts are greater than the individual pieces. One thing that's quite interested is in the NFL, it's a quite a strict financial regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, UEFA are now sort of moving towards some kind of salary cap for European competitions. Do you think the Premier League should have a salary cap? You know, the, the, the Premier League has evolved in a certain way over, you know, over such a long decades and decades of time uh, where once you get to a certain point, it's sort of hard to unwind uh, the inertia of how it is set up. I think they've done a nice job with now setting up, you know, with FFP and trying to structure, uh, structure it in a way to try to manage or to help control it. Uh, with the NFL, the NFL salary cap was put into place in ni- 1993. Um, and so it was really before uh, media rights across all sports took off. Uh, and pl- so as a result, player wages hadn't taken off. And so it was at, uh, it was in a nascent time period where it was easy to implement and execute. And then now it just it's 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 become something that is one of the really the great things about the NFL, even compared to some of the other American sports, because in any the, the beauty of a hard salary cap is in any given year, truly any team can win. Right. And that's why you see, you know, I think it's half or two thirds of the clubs are new clubs every year in the playoffs. Uh, That's because it's just everyone spends the same amount of money. It's just about, you know, how much bang for the buck are you getting and how good of a job are you doing maximizing return and minimizing risk? You know, transfer over uh, to the Premier League. There's with the with the way that we do have uh, some type of financial controls. It's a moving target right now. It's also a function of what your club's revenues are. And so now all of a sudden you're in a position where, okay, well, if you play uh, in a 30,000 odd stadium capacity versus a 50,000 versus 70,000, there's different, uh, there's a different player wage bill that you can afford, right? And if you want to matriculate up the table, um, there's certainly a a lot of evidence to support why it does make sense to play in a bigger stadium uh, and to have a bigger, bigger, bigger revenue base to be able to support that. Um, And it's just the way that, uh, at least here in English football, is is evolved. And so it works. I just, and I think it's hard to undo and change it to a hard salary cap. Do do you think everyone plays by the rules then? (laughs) Uh, Maybe call me naive. I'd like to believe and hope that everyone does play by the rules. Uh, Certainly, I know we do. And so, you know, and, and, I guess that's the essence of fair play uh, and what financial fair play is, right? And so, uh, I'd like to think that everybody plays by the same rules. Yes. So, so how does a team like yours um, get to a level where you compete at the top? If, if there is this kind of regulatory inertia plus these fixed rules, how does yeah. Leeds leap from where they are now to being where you probably want to be competing with Manchester City, Manchester United, right at the top? Yeah, we have to be better at the things that we can control. Uh, you know, two things come to mind. Number one is, you know, Andrea, all the credit to Andrea on this is he went out and identified we need to get ourselves a world-class head coach. 
uh, you know, let's let's go out and and spend the money and recruit the best coach possibly uh, that we can for Leeds United. And then, you know, let's build a culture and let's build a system around that. Uh, the second thing is an academy uh, and, and developing players. Um, the way that, you know, you need to be better than everybody else if you want to compete at the highest level uh, the, at, at finding your own talent, finding your own talent coming from, you know, the very early ages of the academy. And Calvin Phillips is a great example of that. Someone who grew up through our academy, uh, became an every play, uh, you know, an every minute player for Leeds, became a star for Leeds, and now is starring for his country, right? Um, we need to do more of that uh, to be able to to be able to compete. And I think Victor uh, and his team, our sporting director, do a great job uh, doing that. And we we can only control what we can control. And I think that's where two areas why uh, we were so successful last year in the Premier League. How do you balance out developing those players and keeping them? Calvin Phillips is a player that you must have had bids for, say, in this summer transfer window, maybe hard to keep. Yeah, I think one thing has, is has really interesting that has changed since we first got involved with Leeds United in 2017 is when we first really um, tried to get involved and got officially involved. I think it was 2018. And something has changed. Um, something has materially changed in in the air around the club, around Thorpe Parts, around Ellen Road. And that is that there's been a complete culture shift uh, and, you know, really inspired by uh, Marcelo and by Andrea uh, and Angus as well, in that we are becoming a destination, no longer just a train stop, right? It's not just a place for the transient player who's looking to uh, add this or that to his resume and then move on to one of the bigger clubs. Uh, we are slowly becoming a place where people want to play, uh, where people want to be, where people want to um, actually uh, you know, experience the, 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 the best parts of their career. Uh, Calvin Phillips is actually a good example of that, you know, where, yeah, certainly he had, he had his opportunities, uh, and we might've had our opportunities, but in the end, he'd realized that this is where he wants to be. You know, certainly I, I, I hope the same is, is, is going to be with Patrick Bamford as well. It's just, this is, this is becoming home. It's no longer just a train stop. I read a, a survey the other day um, saying something around about within the last year, about half of all Premier League clubs had had uh, interest in, 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 a, in a takeover for, and all the interest is coming from America, from the USA. Well, why is that, do you think? Why, why, why is it our American investors so interested in the Premier League? I can speak to us uh, and I think it's probably three things. Number one is the spirit of competition. Right. And just that, you know, you see an opportunity to uh, get involved somewhere else in the world. And again, it's back to uh, and actually I'll go to my second one, which is it's widget ball, too. It's the same thing. It's sport is sport. Competition is competition. Right. And when you do uh, at the end of the day, you're trying to create the best fan experience for your fans uh, by ver that might be building a new stadium or enhancing your stadium. And you're trying to get the best players on the field or on the pitch. Right. Um, and, you know, when you've accomplished that in American sport than you want, uh, and, and you feel like you have the capabilities and expertise to take it somewhere else, you want to go out and do that. Um, and then I think probably, and this is just my speculation, is that you see clubs in, in not just in the Premier League, but in Europe, uh, they transact more frequently. Uh, I guess what I mean is they're for sale more frequently, right? American, uh, American clubs are just not for sale very often. They don't, uh, many of them are are passed down from generation to generation. You just don't see that as much uh, here. Uh, and so I think that's probably part of it. And honestly, in the Premier League, part of part of what I love about it, what Colin, who's sitting here with me, loves about it is the 
competitiveness where you're literally on the edge of your seat. What I mean is, uh, you know, two years ago, we were one game away from promotion. Sorry, one goal away from promotion, right? And Or at least from playing in that final game in Wembley uh, when we lost at home to Derby. Uh, and so everything, everything is on the line every year where you can be relegated or you can get promoted. Uh, in You know, if you're in the Premier League, the promotion is the Champions League, right? Uh, and so that is a... That is a unique form of competition that actually doesn't really exist uh, in American sports. The pandemic has shown us that a lot of clubs are pretty much frozen in the transfer market, except that Man City have spent $100 million on, on one player there, maybe $150 million on another. They must have really great revenues to support now, that. Now, now let, me, let me ask you about them. You know, you're talking about this, any team can win on any given day. Can they, if one team is able to do, you know, almost defying gravity there, Everyone else is frozen, it seems like. And, yeah. and, you know, Barcelona, for example, are in a crisis. But these these teams, what is it about them that makes them sort of able to just keep going? Yeah, I mean, money is only one element of, of competitive success. Certainly it's an important one, right? Um, but culture um, and attitude and mentality uh, and coaching and teamwork, uh, all of those things matter too, right? And so I think that uh, yes, on any given Saturday or Sunday, anybody can win. Uh, of course, over the long haul, over a long period of time, um, you know, that is harder to endure when somebody has a wage bill that's three, four, five X that of yours. Um, so it does, it does make it harder. Um, but I think you just, you can only, like I said earlier, you can only control what you can, what you can control. Uh, and that's building as strong of a culture uh, and system that you can, and everybody believes uh, believes and trusts in one another. So how has this transfer window been different? Obviously, you're relatively new yeah. to the industry, but Victor and Andrea, yeah. they know the game. quite. What are they yeah. saying about this particular summer transfer window? Yeah, you know, I think we identified this a year ago, actually, when we first got promoted, uh, where we invested, you know, 100 million pounds into the club. Uh, and the intent was to build something that would be over a couple of years. Uh, and so that's where for us, while we didn't bring in, you know, all but uh, one left back into the into the squad um, this year, it was really about the investment that we made last year to to last us a certain period of time. And actually, um, I think we brought in five, five big signings, was it last year? Yeah, five big signings. And they were together on the pitch for something like five games or four games. So they because of various injuries and things like that. So we actually haven't even experienced the full arsenal of talent that we brought in last year. Um, and so this year, I think, but I, and to specifically answer your question, every club, um, certainly the ones that are really fighting and scratching and clawing, every club faced um, some revenue, uh, some revenue challenges because of COVID. All right. And that really changed the marketplace and what people were able to do. And prob frankly, that's probably also why certain clubs um, sold players be in order to make up for some of the uh, some of the difficulties and challenges they had over the last couple of years. But you, we, we talk about Manchester City and their investment. Leeds yeah. had interest from Qatar at one point. W was it you guys coming in and raising your state that sort of fended off Qatar, or would you <laughs> still actually welcome investment from a state like Qatar? No, I think rumors are just that. They're rumors, right? And so I think um, we've I've had a great friendship and relationship and partnership with Andrea uh, now going back seven, six, seven years now. And, and, and within Leeds within four, for four years now. 
and so our intent was always to take a bigger stake and get more involved. You know, the first part for us was to just dip our toes in the water, uh, was to learn about the business. I mean, uh, we have become tremendous fans of the sport uh, now. And actually, I would say we're fans first, you know, investors and owners second. Uh, but we were always just trying to learn first. And then uh, when we felt like we were ready to take a, you know, a bigger leap uh, and who knows, you know, down the road, if we take an even bigger leap. And we're in the midst of the transfer windows we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. What do you not like about football, the industry? Is it the agents? Are they really annoying? Is it sort of working out who are the dodgy ones who are trying to screw you over and the others that you've got to pander to because you want to get a deal over the line? Yeah, you know, um, I would say that Two things that are, are that have been epiphanies for me, uh, in with respect to transfers and players. Number one is that it is truly a global market for talent, right? I've never experienced that being in 20 years at the 49ers. There's only one place to look, right? And it was in the U.S. and it was at colleges, right? Because a player had to be three years removed from high school, so he had to be playing in college. That was it. There's the only place to look for talent. Right here, it's all ages and all places uh, on this planet. Right. And so that is that really lends itself to making sure that you are as good at scouting and or at least determining what physical measurements and athletic traits are are good indicators of performance. Um, and so needing to needing to be really strong on that. Uh, and the second is, yeah, the, the, the fluidity of the marketplace, whether it's driven by agents or by some of the bigger clubs. In American sports, if you're a player who's under contract, uh, for the most part, you're under contract. You're you're either holding out uh, and withholding services and 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 not playing for that club uh, for that year, or retiring uh, or playing for that club. There really isn't another option, right? It seems to be a little bit more fluid here, uh, as I'm learning. Uh, UEFA are meeting next month getting a lot of views from all their different stakeholders, leagues, clubs, players, everybody. Um, one of the things they're going to, on the line, is this idea of the, the Champions League um, access beyond 2024. Originally, the idea was that two places would have been um, awarded based on, on um, historical performance in Europe, the coefficient mm-hmm. ranking. I understand the Premier League at their summer meeting came out very strongly against this Um it would just mean, for example, this season Tottenham would have qualified and Leicester City wouldn't have done. Yeah. Um, can you, from somebody coming from outside the system, um, does this does it seem like a, anathema to you? This idea. I'm just a, I'm supportive of anything that is really merit based, right? Like earning your spot um, and having to re-earn it every year is part of the fabric of English football, and that and what makes it special here. Like I said. Uh, like I said earlier, and like I've probably said to each of you guys in, in in previous interviews, is that what makes it special here is is supporters of clubs get the uh, get the privilege to celebrate when a club wins and commiserate when a club loses. That's what makes it special. That's what makes it more than fanhood. It makes it family. It's part of your a club is part of your family. And so any any competition uh, that's based truly on on uh, merit then I'm totally supportive of. And so I'm not sure that how the coefficients work with, with uh, Tottenham and Leicester, but uh, depending on whoever deserved it, that's what I'm supportive of. Are the Super League six, are they all forgiven now? <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, I know that uh, the Premier League has done a good job of trying to put closure to it. And I certainly 
um, I think all of the Premier League clubs have have come out publicly uh, and talking about uh, why why they are back in uh, back in here. So I'm so that's great. Um, you know, I spoke about this before, and so I don't mind saying it again. Like I just I just I was not a fan of it because it is just about a static point in time. Um, not about, you know, continuous earning of, of the position. And so, you know, one of the things that frustrated me was 40 years ago, uh, we would have, we would have been a super league club. Uh, right. And, but, but then we fell on hard times. We didn't earn it. And like, how nice would it have been, uh, and convenient, sorry, not even nice, how convenient it would have been if it was put together 40 years ago and we can be there in perpetuity. Right. But that's just not, uh, that's just not how the sauce should be made, not in English football. And so I, I am happy that everybody's sort of come back uh, to the fray. And I think the Premier League and, and their leadership did a good job of bringing everyone back into the fold. To, to that point, in, you're there in April, probably in California at some point. It's three o'clock in the morning or something. Does your phone buzz and say, Parag, Super League, we're doomed? Like, what was the, <laughs> what, what were those 24 hours like for you? Um, yes, the phone, the, the phone rang and buzzed, but I think there was never. I, I think none of us really had the true sense that it would, would that it would come to fruition because it just seemed uh, so far out there and so against what we're about um, that I don't I don't I never actually truly felt the threat or the risk because I ne- I just never felt like it could possibly materialize. I had it materialized and the risk is there. Yeah. What does that do to? your investment. Yeah. I mean, it, it certainly hurts us. I mean, without question, it hurts us because like part of what you play for, you know, I always talk about for us, it was sort of uh, three or four stages. The first stage was getting the club promoted. The second stage was showing that we belong in the Premier League. The third was being able to matriculate up the table. And the fourth is being able to compete for Europa or Champions League. And if that opportunity is taken away or that opportunity was significantly reduced because there was a, there was you know three or four static spots that were already given predetermined at the beginning of the season, then yeah, without question, um, takes away from that. But uh, even bigger and more bigger than our investment, more important than our investment is it takes away from the competitiveness of the sport. It takes away from uh, all of the fans and not just Leeds United fans in our case, right? But including the Super League fans. Like, why are you playing the season? Uh, because what's the point? From the English perspective, this was really driven by Americans. Do you, do you know them? Have you spoken to, say, <laughs> Joe Glazer or John Henry? What, what's your personal? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have not. I have not spoken to them about it. Um, I don't know. Um, I, like, I only know what I've read as well. So I don't know that it was driven by American owners. I don't know that. Um, but I was also uh, not shy about uh, sharing my feelings about this in May when I was out here uh, about the Super League and. I'm not sure how that went over with uh, with my American counterparts. Uh, I'm assuming it didn't go over well, but uh, but that's okay. I feel how I feel. But, but where's power in the Premier League now? Do you feel you've got more control as the clubs outside of the so-called Big Six to fend off whether they're trying to get a bigger share of TV rights or to reinvent things like Project Big Picture, or are they just as powerful uh, as ever? Um, I think it's a little bit of both because I think what has what has really the benefit of the falling out of the Super League is is a refined understanding of meritocracy, right? Of understanding that it's not just about six, it's about 20 uh, in the Premier League, or it's about, you know, the entire FA, really. Um, but in the Premier League's case, it's about all of us. Uh, and decisions need to be made democratically and with merit. 
Uh, and so I think there is a new understanding of that um, that I've already seen in the past year that, or I guess in the past six months, that's really neat. In terms of other, other things that you've managed to see off or things that are now dead that they might try to float the big stuff? Just in the tenor of the conversations and, and how they've gone. And, you know, there's been, there's been conversations around uh, media rights distributions, things like that. And uh, the way uh, that it, the conversation could have gone versus the way that it is going, it definitely seems like it's much more of a democratic process. Does it seem odd to you that we're back to a system where all the games aren't on television? Do you think it'd make more sense to have every game available live domestically so your fans could watch even if they couldn't get to the stadium? Yeah, I mean, there's creative solutions to be able to do that. You know, whether it was, you know, you've got you've got the what's on TV, but maybe there is, that's another opportunity, just thinking out loud, you know, some t- sort of one-to-one streaming aspect uh, that the that the Premier League can do, that, that you know, sporting institute leagues can do. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is something that every every supporter that wants to watch, uh, it'd be nice to, for them to be able to watch. You know, I talk about this a lot. We almost missed a whole generation of Leeds United fans uh, not being able to see their club in the Premier League, right? Six, 16, 17 years of not in, plus a year that we weren't even ha- able to have fans. Like, that's almost a whole generation uh, that that was skipped, right? And so that's 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 too bad. And like, you want them to be able to experience and enjoy uh, their family member that's a club. Your players at Leeds will continue to take a knee this season. You have great involvement with the origins of that with Colin Kaepernick mm-hmm. in terms of starting to at the 49ers. Mm-hmm. How do you reflect on that moment when he first took a knee and the impact on his own career and the wider impact actually of taking a knee and how it's taken off in sport? Yeah, you know, the one thing that... Uh, that I've always known and, and it's great that players have a much deeper consciousness about this now, um, is that they are really icons, um, to a lot of people. Uh, it's not, they're not just athletes on the pitch, you know, kicking a ball, shooting a basket, throwing a ball, whatever it is. Um, people look to them, um, as models for, you know, how they want to act and interact themselves. And so it's just a, a, a heightened player consciousness or human consciousness um, that, you know, obviously, yes, with Colin Kaepernick and going forward with all players. I think it's a really good thing because, you know, they are representatives of the community. They're not just athletes. Right. And, you know, they're they it's good that they're sharing their opinions and staking their positions as well. Do you think Colin Kaepernick suffered for taking a stand? Anytime somebody is the first at doing something, you know, and and he certainly was a pioneer in doing that, uh, then you there's a lot at stake and you're putting your career uh, at risk and career on the line. Right. Um, do I think that that people um, still want still value uh, evaluated him on the merits of his play? I would like to I would like to think so. Um, but yes, anytime anyone's standing up for himself or herself, you're taking a risk. Can I ask about social media abuse? You, you've got obviously got an American football team in San Francisco, 49 is yep. very famous, and Leeds United. Mm-hmm. It seems the conversation isn't in the US about racist abuse towards American players, but it is in England. Do you know why? Are they not being abused online in the States in the same way they are in the UK? Yeah, I have noticed that, Tarek, and that's a that's an interesting question because... Um, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it, it certainly happens. It certainly happens. And there is definitely, uh, you know, in every pocket of the world, there is racism, right? And, and abuse that comes from that. Um, it, but is it as out in the open and 
Um, and as vitriolic as it is here, um, it's, I don't think it is. And I'm not sure why. And you're based in California where these platforms are based. Yeah. Do you think Silicon Valley has a greater responsibility to root this stuff out? Uh, I think the, I think the social media companies realize that they do, uh, that they have a greater responsibility. And I think they've done things, um, they've done things to try to control the message, uh, not control the message, but to, uh, to uh, mute certain forms of abuse. Right. I mean, well, the one example that comes to mind is when when Twitter decided to block former President Trump, uh, right, from being able to use Twitter as a platform. Um, so yeah, they, I think individual companies they do have a greater sense of responsibility, but I think they I think they feel it too and are acting on it. Uh, taking off another one of your hats, um, you are uh, well, the head of USA Cricket. Now there is moves afoot for cricket um, to be added to the Olympics for Los Angeles 2028 mm -hmm. um, up the road from where you are. How likely do you think that is? Is, is it possible? Have you had any talks with the people at, at LA? What, what, what's the situation at the moment? The short answer is I, I'm hopeful that it's very likely. I think uh, for the first time ever, 106 member nations of the ICC are supportive of getting cricket into the Olympic Games. You're talking about the second biggest sport in the world, played by virtually you know, uh, every corner of the globe, uh, and having the opportunity to have the games in the largest media market in the world, being in LA uh, in 2028. It's just such a tremendous opportunity. And you, know, you think about the additional number of eyeballs that will be watching if cricket is in there. I think that uh, and we've got a billion fans of the sport around the world, 30 million in the U.S. And that's, you know, and then we're still just in the nascent stages of building something. Um, and so obviously we uh, do it with, you know, full humility and deference to the, I the IOC um, and the L.A. committee uh, on being able to, you know, compete with the other sports to, to be the sport that's selected to be able to play. So I, I don't want to I certainly don't want to make it a foregone conclusion. The question is, which format would it be? Yeah. Uh, obviously, we now have the 100 as yet another new format, probably the only right. format without a world right. championship. So, Yeah, I think, I think the T20 format is, is one that is easily digestible and works. It certainly works because from a timing perspective, it fits the format of American sports, you know, roughly three hours. Uh, and obviously, it's an understood format because of the success of the IPL, and they've done such a great job. Um, but of course... We, when I said we will do this in full deference to the IOC, like we'll work with them in terms of, you know, if, if there was a different format that they preferred, uh, then we're open to it. The most important thing is for us to get cricket in the games. Uh, but we do go in thinking that, that T20 is probably the best one. Is one of the challenges, what do the players get out of it? The Olympics falls right in the middle of the English cricketing summer. So yeah. it would disrupt a test and... T20 series that England would be playing in so many other countries yeah. as well. How do you entice the best players and not cause that disruption to the season or take them away from what they're already playing? I think the answer is easy. And I think the answer is that you just, everybody, every stakeholder in cricket needs to be able to see the forest through the trees. And what I mean by that is cricket being in the Olympic Games um, and the Olympic Games is the great galvanizer of communities, right? Great, great galvanizer, galvanizer of sport where all of a sudden people around the world are cheering for fencing stars or biking stars or speed walking stars, right? And because it's just, it's what everybody can get around. 
Uh, and so cricket being in the games raises the uh, profile of the sport uh, and as a result raises the interest in the sport. As a result of raising the interest, in, in, it raises the media rights value of the individual leagues and sports that are in there. And the increased media rights means more money for players. Uh, right. So in the end, and when I say foresee the forest of the street, trees, it's it's best for all stakeholders that we're in that we have the opportunity to be in the Olympics. Cricket USA, for, for us, there isn't any visibility, really. Mm -hmm. What is the pandemic? Pandemic probably set you back in terms of what you're trying. What right. is it you're trying to do over there? What are we going to see? We already are doing it. We have a minor league going right now um, that started in late July. That's going to finish. Uh, in early October, the 24, 24 teams around the country uh, playing, minor league teams playing. Uh, we are going to start a T20 league in 2022. Um, we'll be in six geographies, start with six teams um, and build, you know, or, or retrofit six uh, stadiums around the country and play uh, a T20 format uh, league. Uh, we've, we gave the license to do this league to, uh, to a, an investor group that are, are, has already raised the money for it. Uh, and everything is, is going to start in 22 and then beyond, uh, get better and better. And I think the third thing you're going to see is as a result of, uh, a successful league, which we know we'll have is then our national team is going to become much, much better. And we're going to go from becoming an associate member to a full member uh, and competing in the World Cups globally. Just on scale, because these are very short tournaments so these yeah. players can move around. Are we saying that we're going to see the world's best players for whatever, three weeks, four weeks, in the United States playing cricket? That's our hope and desire, yeah, that we'll have some of the best players in the world competing in, in Major League Cricket, which is the name of, uh, of our league. Uh, that will start exactly. Well, good luck turning the US into a cricket nation. We better let you get up to Ellen Road now. It's been great having you on Sport Unlock, taking us and the listeners inside Leeds United, the San Francisco 49ers and those cricket plans too. Of course, that was fun, guys. Parag, thank you very much for joining us. And of course, as ever, Martin Ziegler alongside me, Tarek Panja as well. And thank you everyone for listening. Yeah, it's been great with everybody here in the flesh. Um, it, it actually... Let's hope we can do it much more often. And right now, Tarek, we are... We're off for a curry, so thanks for listening. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. And if you can, please subscribe to us and follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Sport Unlocked. Enjoy the sports feeling in the days ahead. Goodbye for now. Sports Unlocked.